Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. I'd just like to mention before we get into this episode that Mark, Patrick and I were recently interviewed by the very wonderful Andy Mascola at his podcast, People Are the Enemy. You'll see a link to this podcast in the description of the episode. Be sure to check that out. We have another special episode today that we are all very excited about. This week, we interview the extraordinary bass player from The Stranglers, JJ Burnell. Hello. Hi, is this JJ? You're speaking, yeah. Uh, this is Mark, Patrick and Graham from the Known Pleasures podcast. How are you? Very well. How are you going? I'm fine, thanks. I'm just uh, supping a glass of uh, red wine and I was listening to a band called The Angels from Adelaide. Oh, oh yes, yeah. yes. What do you think of them? Well, I was just listening to it for the first time because some uh, friends of mine just popped round. Um, I'm, I'm in France here and some... UK friends of mine have been to Australia a few years ago and, and they said, ah, oh, there are some awesome bands in Australia. Listen to this one. Uh, they're from Adelaide, I think he said. Um, yeah. And I was just listening to something about, will I ever see this face again or something? Yeah, oh, yeah. yes, yes. They also had a song called Marseille. Really? So, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's just about an hour away from me. Oh, oh OK. You yeah, you, you might enjoy that one too. I think Guns N' Roses might have covered Marseille or one of those kind of bands. But anyway, be that okay, as it may. Sorry. Okay, well, I'll check that out. Uh, JJ, I, I just thought I'd explain just a little bit about us before we uh, before we start. Our podcast is called Known Pleasures, and we basically talk about the music and bands from the uh, post-punk and new wave era. Okay. Actually, we've already featured the Stranglers on a podcast last year. Okay. But we thought that uh, in the lead-up to your February tour, we thought we could uh, release a quick interview with you as well. That would be wonderful. What? Uh, where are you calling me from? Oh, Sydney, Australia. So how's your breathing at the moment? <laughs> yeah, it's not good. I mean, last night in particular was um, quite bad. There's a lot of ash and smoke sort of floating around in the yeah. air. So, yeah, it's it's been a really difficult summer so far. Well, it's it's it seemed uh, from our perspective in, in France and, and in the UK... It seemed horrific, and uh, I think there's not a single person who doesn't feel for for what you've been experiencing, and also all the uh, tragedy of the wildlife. So, um, um, mm. I, I almost thought it was might be fatuous for us to come over at this period, but um, uh, wiser heads counselled me, said, "No, on the contrary, you must go." So, um, yeah, well, so I look, think the worst is right. over, maybe with a bit of luck. We hope so. We hope so. It's kind of ongoing at the moment, and it's for us. It's only really the middle of summer, so there's a little bit of <laughs> yeah. heat to come. But it seems it seems to me uh, really weird that uh, some people are still in denial about what's happening on the planet. Yeah, in Australia, uh, the whole climate change thing is so highly politicised that the conservative yeah, side of politics, everywhere. which is in power at the moment, has. You know, in somewhat in contrast to the conservatives in the UK, for instance, who who, who do accept, you know, um, bl- yeah, global yeah. warming, you know, from, from a scientific perspective, as I understand it. But yeah, well, the... I suppose uh, I mean, uh, from if you from the outside, it seems that there are obviously vested interests in Australia. I mean, Australia didn't suffer the recession that the rest of the world seemed to have, and a lot of that was down to because. Yeah, um, Australia is a fantastic ex- exporter of minerals 
uh, especially coal. I think it's the biggest exporter of coal. So I think it, that that must colour um, political decisions, obviously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as you might have heard, our our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, prior to him becoming Prime Minister, uh, brought a piece of coal into Parliament House during one of the parliamentary sessions um, just to kind of taunt the uh, Labor Party, the kind of the so-called oh, lefties, really? mm. you know, with, um, look, it's nothing to be afraid of, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, right. which was... Yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's fine uh, under normal circumstances, but when there's a weight of evidence which kind of uh, ban- uh, sort of balances in a certain direction, you must take heed of that. And also um, maybe to the extent that you'd go on holiday to Hawaii because it's not important. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was in marketing prior to this job, so, you know, we, we don't really know what his angle is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely from our perspective, we, you know, we would love you to come over here and I'm sure, you know, everyone else would as well. So I'm glad Wiser Heads have prevailed as you describe it. Okay, I might just pass you over to Mark uh, for the first question. Yeah, sure. Okay, do you mind if we, we call you JJ? Is that okay? No, whatever you can get your lips around. <laughs> or, or, JJ. Pat, Patrick so, is a French speaker, but I'm not going to give that a, a go. That was a euphemism, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, all right. Well, JJ, the Stranglers were the first overseas punk act to tour Australia in early 79, uh, and anticipation was yeah. at fever pitch then. Uh, two shows in Brisbane's Queen's Hotel in particular are forever etched in local folklore up there. And as a young man yeah. fresh to that city, I listened wide-eyed to tales of those nights when I first moved there. Do you recall right. much about those two gigs and how you personally dealt with any overexcited uh, audience members you found? Well, I'm not sure if they were overexcited audience members or members of Joe Bielke Peterson's uh, uh, special uh, police group. Um, I know that uh, I was absolutely fascinated by the situation in Brisbane uh, at the time that a a party could be in control of government with a minority of votes, and it was the first time the word gerrymander had come into my vocabulary. And also the fact that... um, a beautiful state like Queensland was being um, sold, uh, lands was being sold off for uranium mining. Uh, lands which had previously been lived on by, uh, by uh, native people, Aboriginals, and all this, and then that groups of three or more people were considered an illegal gathering. So we were. This was the first time I'd encountered this kind of thing. I'd read about it in, um, you know, in other countries like in uh, Alabama, uh, George Wallace's Alabama in the '60s. But first time I'd encountered it firsthand. So yeah, it was exciting and um, also uh, quite oppressive. The audience was certainly up for the gigs anyway. Um, as I said, I was too oh, young yeah, to go. I missed so. out, but they were pretty crazy. Couple of nights apparently. Yeah, they were. They were. There was fighting on stage and. We didn't know who was a friend and who was a foe, and then we had to disappear over the uh, the state line. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're a young man, that's you know that's all you need, isn't it? That's right, rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mark, Mark actually got got arrested a couple of times under that law you mentioned in terms of public gatherings of 
what, four? I think it was three or more, basically. The police could just roll up yeah, and, and basically right. arrest you under any pretext and, and lock you up. And I was yeah. a, a schoolboy. I was locked up for a couple of times. <laughs> just just for yeah. looking like a punk, um, basically. Quite... <laughs> Excuse me? Just for looking like a punk on the street, actually, that, that was it. That was enough to be arrested. Yeah, I, I had that a few times, even in London in 76. You know, I was walking down the Fulham Palace Road and five guys on the other side of the road didn't like the fact that my jeans were kind of not flared, my hair wasn't long, and um, uh, and they just crossed the road and had a go at me, and uh, we had a good old tear-up. <laughs> I, I bet you did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't fancy their chances anyway. But <laughs> no, they, they didn't come off best. <laughs> JJ, in a recent interview you said you just invented a new word, stranglerian, <laughs> so as in strangler with an I-A-N, on the end, and uh, meaning yes. provocative, thought-provoking and controversial. And I wonder, like, of the many Stranglerian things that have happened to the Stranglers, whether there's kind of one in particular that's, that stands out. Uh, well, there are a few. I mean, I was reminded of one uh, only recently in, in France. And I, uh, it's just, you know, we all have, a, well, I hope we all have a sense of humour, but sometimes one's sense of humour doesn't correspond to someone else's <laughs> and uh, we um and yeah it, there was uh, a t- well there are a couple <laughs> couple of occasions when um uh, in the early days people thought it was a cool thing to spit at the at the band you know it was a thing this is the punk thing to do apparently so i don't know where it came from but um so uh, People started spitting at us um, at these gigs, and uh, one night we just thought, we're not having any of this. I mean, our, our mate of ours, Joe Strummer, at the time from The Clash, had uh, got a bit of, um, uh, what did he get? He got something, hepatitis or something, from swallowing someone's spit. Anyway, wow. so people were spitting at us. We saw someone do it. I dived into the audience, um, Grabbed hold of this guy. We, we all the whole band dragged him onto the stage. Took his trousers down. Stuck a stuck a banana up his ass. <laughs> and um, we thought that would that would sort the problem out, and people would stop doing it. <laughs> unfortunately, it was the UK. Unfortunately, because it was the UK, the next day people were queuing up to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. There was another time in France, in Paris, actually. We were recording the gig, so we had a mobile studio. I think it was the Rolling Stones mobile studio backstage. We were recording the show. And just as a laugh, when we came back for the encores, I told the audience um, that actually we hadn't been playing at all. We'd been playing uh, playback to playback. <laughs> yeah. I said, to prove it, I'm gonna, we're going to play you something. So we played them back through the PA, something we'd recorded only about half an hour before. <laughs> and they fell for it. So they thought we'd actually been ripping them off, not playing at all, but playing to a playback tape, which wasn't the case. Right. Um, so that was the end of our career um, in France for about four years. <laughs> they didn't appreciate that? Nah. Yeah, no that, sense that, these that... <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic stuff. That, that all sounds very Stranglerian, I think, I have to say. It sure does. Thank you. <laughs> we love that. <laughs> We've defined the word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At one point we did have a, a motto, a saying, this is 
truth through provocation. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing like if you, you if you tease people, you can actually get to the heart of the person sometimes. Mm. See how vulnerable, how fragile they are, or how much they respond. Or you press the right button and they go off on one. You know. Mm. Well, the band seemed to enjoy doing that. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> the was repercussions. I had. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say that the, the, the late seventies seemed to suit the band, though um, confrontational, controversial, and provocative, as you were saying. You were never the media's darlings in those days. Um, of, do you think that the humour behind the band was was missed a lot of the time? And and how do you think you would be perceived if you were to come out in today's climate? I've no idea. That's that's a pure conjecture, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I haven't thought about that. I do know that um, we were kind of put into a corner, and you know, like anyone, you're in a, you're in a corner. You either have to fight your way out of it, or you just get struck down. And uh, so we developed our own sort of independent way of developing a bit like the marsupials uh, <laughs> of which there aren't so many left now in australia yeah, yeah. but the, you know you develop you develop you evolve yeah. uh, separately from everything else you know and at one point um we uh i think uh, not to, to not to be treat the marsupial things uh, lightly because i think it's a huge tragedy but you know you, if you're separate from everything else or everyone else after a while you you evolve differently don't you separately Mm. And that's what happened to us. Absolutely. To throw uh, another quote at you, um, if you're going out having punch-ups, you're not allowed to have intellectual pretensions, but we had a foot in both camps, really. Does yeah. That... It was... Well, at, at one point, you know, the, um, the the British press especially, I think more than Europe, a lot of the Europeans and the Americans sort of seemed to think that if you played a certain kind of music that you shouldn't have artistic or intellectual pretensions because that's what they were. They were pretensions. And so they liked the idea of the noble savage. Um, but, you know, our, our story was quite different. We were getting picked on almost on a daily basis at one point. So what do you do? Do you rush off stage and cry home or do you stand and, and deliver, stand and fight? You know, so... After a while, we were kind of hardened um, and, and seasoned veterans of, of people trying... <laughs> the gunslinger syndrome. People, right, OK, they're from London, they're a punk band, they got caught, they're called the Stranglers, let's see how tough they are. So after a while, you kind of get used to it. So there was that. But also, we did have pretensions, and I still have pretensions. I, I want to I seek what's, what's best... Um, intellectually and artistically. I haven't achieved it yet, but that's what I see, you know. Um, and I think, don't we all do that to a certain extent? Oh, I think you've, you've achieved a lot of that in, in your career, and I think from, from the very start, the band were, were never about standing still. Um, when we featured you, we spoke uh, on the podcast about you not being just a great punk band, but also one of the first to break out of punk very quickly uh, into what became known as post-punk and then far beyond, of course, in subsequent years. Um, that sense of musical exploration. Well, I think that is a compliment. Absolutely, actually. it is a great compliment. Um, that that sense of exploration is is part of the band's DNA, in my opinion. Um, what what do you regard as maybe the boldest or most groundbreaking album of those first five or six years? Because it seemed like every album was kind of a departure from the previous one. Well, first of all, you've got to think. If you like music, if you love music, 
you don't necessarily like just one genre of music. You know, I, I like a bit of jazz, I like a classical, I like all kinds of stuff, synthesizer music, uh, rap and everything. So, you know, when you're a fan of those styles of music, if you're a musician, you certainly want to try to emulate them or, or, or learn something from them. Oh, that's a great bass riff, I'll try that. Oh, cool, I wish I'd written that song or that riff, that melody. What That, that vocal line is perfect. You know, you, you know, that kind of thing. So you explore. Now, we always knew that we... We had kind of limited talent, but we, we wanted to see how far that limited talent would take us. So sometimes you, tr you try something, you know, like a like a Django Reinhardt feel, you know, um, and, you know, it doesn't work. Or, some, or you try a reggae thing, because um, we were subjected to quite a lot of that in the early days. And you don't quite get it, you know. It ends up being like Peaches, you know, which is the bass, the, the, the snare drum is on the wrong beat. We didn't realise that at the time. We just wanted to create that space and try and emulate that. So you, you're, you're firing in all different directions. Sometimes you hit the target and sometimes you don't. But there's no point sticking to a, a, a formula, especially when you've had success. You know, there's always that commercial pressure. Ah, you've had a hit with this, so let's do the same thing again. Mm, Fuck yeah. off. You know, life's <laughs> too short. Let's take a risk. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of the time people are afraid to take the risk because once you've hit a formula, a successful formula, you know, there's so many pressures on you to repeat that. Yeah. But I kind of find that more perverse than what we did, which was do the opposite. We, um, we had a, a worldwide hit with a song called Golden Brown. Mm, yeah. uh, no one wanted to release it. The record company didn't want to release it. We insisted on releasing it. We, we, we really believed in that track. Golden brown, texture like sun, lays me down with my mind she runs. So when it was a worldwide hit, despite the record company, they said, can you do the same again? So we gave them a seven minute song in French. Il était une fois un étudiant qui voulait fort comme en littérature. I don't see... Life is too short to follow the, the, the muse of the, the, you know, the commercial imperative, you know. Mm. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know. <laughs> but we all share the failures and the successes. Absolutely. JJ, in our recent podcast, we noticed during this particular sweet spot, I guess, of the late 70s and early 80s, that the bass guitar became very prominent and you seemed to be like at the forefront of this. Did you realise in those early days that you were starting something new when you when the bass was pushed up in the mix? Or uh, no, sir. No. <laughs> All I knew was that I didn't want to be drowned out by the other bastards in the band. <laughs> and, um, and that's how I kind of developed... My certain thing, but also um, I, I wasn't really listening to any bass players. I had a few bass player heroes, but no more than other guitarist heroes or drummer heroes. But mm. um, I just uh, found my my place in this band, and um, I wasn't going to let anyone push me away. So uh, I started developing the uh, thinking. Well, why does the bass have to be in the shadows all the time? You know, mm. boom, 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 boom. There might be a place for that in some songs, but that wasn't the kind of music we were, we were 
Yeah, well, right. I'm glad you did so, uh, because the the music and the bass players that came in your wake were all great, and uh, you seem to influence yeah. a, a lot of people as well. Well, a lot of them have since said really nice things. I wish they'd said them at the time, but <laughs> I suppose you know they didn't have the balls to say. <laughs> <laughs> at the time. But yeah, they're coming out the woodwork and 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 uh, referencing me. So. Better late than never. As far as the bass playing goes, I was um, struck on your Euro Man Cometh album, which is just about my favourite of all the Stranglers recordings, solo or band. Wow, the, okay. the unusual. That's what Peter Hook says. <laughs> uh, no surprise, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess I'm kind of curious about what inspired you to do the album in that way, because there wasn't a lot of bass driven drum machine music around at the time. I mean, even Gary no, Newman. Well, e- even Gary Newman was still using real right, drums. You said the right word there, drum machine, because um, it was right on the cusp of the change between uh, analogue and digital. Je suis And I wasn't really aware of it at the time, but I was in the studio and we were doing um, we were doing Black and White album, which was our third album. And I had nowhere to live, so I was living in the studio. So everyone would pack up uh, at eight, nine o'clock at night, and um, because the producer had said, "No, my ears are tired, so stop there." And I'd be there in my sleeping bag, and I'd kind of worked out the rudimentaries of how to work a. Uh, a recording machine uh, at the time and I had a drum machine and it was and they were very limited you know they weren't it wasn't like a, a lin drum or something you know you could program it mm. it had rock and roll one rock and roll two <laughs> samba one samba two you know you could just speed it up so you could yeah anything anyway so I thought they were good basis for doing learning a little adding a little riff to a rhythm thing and just how it developed so over the course of a few weeks, uh, I just developed this thing in the studio. Um, bearing in mind that I was a bit of a fan of uh, bands like Kraftwerk right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and stuff, so who were much more electronically invested than I was with my me- feeble little drum machine <laughs> and, and, and what have you, trying to emulate that. And it kind of developed from there. Um, and also the subject, Euroman Cometh, where was it, at the time, um, it was a brave new world for Europe. You know, there was, uh, there was still the um, European Economic Community. Mm, it yeah. wasn't the EU at yeah. the time. So uh, it was just a start of a relaxation of rules uh, and visas between various countries who were trying to, really trying to find common uh, things in common rather than the differences that had created two world wars and yeah. you know all the shit that had come from that you know so i also because my body's french but my mind's kind of british you know i grew up in the uk from french parents so yeah. i always had this identity thing and i always thought this is so primitive this identity thing but of course it's not it's primordial everyone needs an identity yeah. um so and everyone needs to identify with something something you know uh, whether it's the herd, the pack, the gang, whatever. Um, so I kind of started uh, investing in this idea that, okay, you're British, you're, you're English, you're Scottish, you're Irish, you're Welsh, you're French, you're German, everything. But basic, there are more things that we have in common than we don't. Have. Absolutely. 
Yeah, it's a, so, so I invested in the idea of being a Euroman. It, do, it does feel... A long, boring explanation. Yeah, no, no. Well, no it resulted in a fantastic album, so yeah. <laughs> it does feel like a really expansive, inclusive album you know, and the ideas behind it. I mean, even Sydney got a mention. <laughs> exactly. I was born... But I haven't born at a European show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> JJ, just if I could ask just one more question before you wrap it up. Yes, uh, for your next tour, when you guys come out, are, are there any uh, surprises added to the set list at all? Well, I doubt if anyone knows all our material. So our set list is pretty eclectic. We could change it every night. Um, the only thing that if... Imagine if you knew every single Stranglers track, then there will be a couple of tracks you won't probably have ever heard because they haven't been recorded yet right, yeah, so what yeah. we're trying to do is uh, what we're trying to do is actually play play in some songs because we've started recording an album um, and we're trying to play some in before we record them uh, which is a luxury because when you you know many bands don't get that chance to do but I've realised that in recent years that you know you play something new and by the time you get back to your hotel it's already on youtube so let's not be precious let's not get precious about material now and it changes you know the more you play something the more it develops and it, you 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 find more out about and how the best way to play something so we're going to be playing some stuff which hasn't been recorded um so that when we go back to the uk we can record them in a better way. Well, JJ, thanks very much for your time. This has been great. Well, thank you for your time. I mean, you guys are phoning me up. It's 10.30 at night here. What time is it your way? 9.30 in the morning? 8.30. <laughs> nice and early on a Friday early morning. Early risers. That's yeah. not very rock and roll. <laughs> well, no. we're only doing it for you, so... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> uh, all the girls say that. <laughs> just wanted to say thank you for your time and energy. Um, it's been a real uh, personal honour for me. You're a big hero of mine as a, as a young lad, and I always look forward to what you're going to do next. Keep doing it. I will do. Thanks very much. Ciao. Th Have thanks, a great JJ. evening. Thanks thank a lot. you. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.